Infinite Horrors Podcast. I mean, if you're looking for sense when coming into this movie, you're you're in the wrong place. <laughs> By the way, I love calling B-movies blisters because they're B-list movies that are kind of painful to watch. So, Sam, have you seen any flying saucers over Hollywood? <laughs> not, not today. Hopefully someday soon. How close is your nearest cemetery? Oh man, actually, funny you ask that. I actually live fairly close to the Hollywood forever. Oh my God. Plan 9 was filmed a stone's throw away from Hollywood forever. So very close, <laughs> actually. So just be very careful about, you know... Looking out your window at the wrong time of night, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Any, any weird spotlights passing by? How's your weekend? What's good with you? I've been all right. I have not been reanimated by electrodes from Martians. So, you know, I'm feeling pretty happy about that. <laughs> Would you rather be reanimated by highlighter juice or electrodes from aliens? Or a spotlight? Mmm. Probably spotlight. I have a deathly fear of needles. So okay. if, if yeah, I cannot get punctured. Well, you'd be dead. No, that's right. I wouldn't realize it, would I? No. <laughs> so uh, how about yourself? <laughs> would you take the spotlight? Well, if I could look like Vampira, yeah. Oh my God. Oh my God. Literally the first note I wrote when I was watching this movie was, Vampira looks nice. <laughs> well, that's really William C. Thompson's beautiful like framing that, you know, he's really known for when he works with the B-movies, which I, by the way, I love calling B-movies blisters because they're B-list movies that are kind of painful to watch sometimes. And he honestly has some of the most gorgeous framings I have ever seen. But yeah. you have to remember that in this context, Ed Wood worked off of a sticks and stones budget. Like his first day of filming was $900 and he did the yeah. equivalent of getting like a camera from some like secondhand shop and just shooting. And William Thompson would never do retakes, never really direct. He would just go do it. I got it. Like, come on, let's go. And would just go for like meeting a time budget. Yeah. And for that, he made iconic shots because that beautiful shot of Vampira reaching towards the camera is iconic. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> we'll get into the camera shots and such later. I think you have a much rosier <laughs> view of this movie. Than no, I'm not saying it's a good movie. I'm just saying for the budget and for the type of movie this was, because the movie wasn't meant to be made. It was essentially, I have to backtrack a little bit. So Ed Wood is a very interesting character. He really valued his creative freedom. So he would never take any funding that would cause him to restrict his creative process. Hmm. And at some point, somebody offered him $100,000 or something. I think it was even less than that to basically shoot silent black and white footage of Bela Lugosi, which is all of the stuff he appears in. And they told him to shoot it at Tor Johnson's house and the cemetery. And then after... Bela Lugosi dies because this is his last film. When he dies before it's finished, they decide to essentially create a story around the footage they shot. Right. He was like good friends with Bela Lugosi, right? Oh, yes. They'd been hanging out. Very close. I think they were both notorious drunks and maybe a little opiates were involved. Bela had a severe morphine addiction because right. of his failing right. health. And because he was Dracula, he was typecast and he lost a lot of work. So... Growing up, Ed Wood actually ushered at the local film theater, and he fell in love with the serials, but particularly the film Dracula, and he loved Bela Lugosi, and he actually cites this as like a turning point in his life, as, as seeing mm -hmm. Dracula on screen. So he really worked to help Bela kind of get back into the films, and that's why he's in all of his films and yeah. really supported him during his failing health, which is lovely. So they were very close. And even Vampira says that it's like one of the nicest things she's seen. Oh, it must have been a great opportunity for Ed Wood to work with a hero like that. But then to kind of oh, reciprocate, because it was no, I think Plan 9 was definitely marketed as Bella Lugosi's last movie. Every Ed Wood movie was marketed with his name. 
Right. So like he's helping out Bella by giving him work. And on the flip side, the name recognition surely went miles in terms of getting Plan 9 any sort of attention that it might have gotten. Which wasn't much because it had a very poor reception until, you know, as all cult films do, they get a second wind. But, you know, I love seeing Bella in Ed Wood films. I really do. Because Bella started as a theater actor, which is why he ended up playing Dracula. And he's gorgeous. Every part he does, you can tell that that's his background. It's beautiful. I love his delivery. He's the only good actor in Plan 9. Yeah. It's the best. I love it. And to be fair, he's the only actor in Plan 9. (laughs) The bar is not terribly high there. Yeah. But yeah, he is the best amongst the cast. (laughs) We'll get to some of those choice lines. Oh boy. It's funny. I watch a movie like this and I'm equal parts amazed and horrified and (laughs) upset. Well, like, I don't know. I love it because it's essentially being made on no money. And I think what they're able to do without that money is really interesting. And I do think it is a very big testament to Ed Wood. He's not the greatest filmmaker. He's not the most coherent. He's a terrible writer. He really is. But you can see the passions there. And there are some little sparkling bits here and there, which I really enjoy. And it's like the same thing as Saw, right? Like no budget, but like the first Saw is a much better story and a much cooler ending. Um, You know, with low budget movies, you kind of got to make up for the lack of production value with storytelling. And people give Plan 9 from Outer Space this label of one of the worst movies ever made. Which I think is ridiculous. That's not very fair because there's a whole lot of movies made which lack the originality and the creative spirit and the high concept ideas that are floating around in Plan 9. Like, I'd say all these rehashed, refurbished, you know, like superhero stories were pummeled with three times a year. Like, those lack the soul of something like an Ed Wood film, you know? Yeah. And they have infinite amounts of money. And so Ed Wood, what's really awesome about him to me is that he's like proof that if you really persevere and work hard enough you can make it happen if you if you really try. And this guy, this guy had the willpower to fucking do it. You and, will uh, end up you know, dying in your friend's guest room from your alcoholism, but you know you will gain a cult following later in life. You know, actually, yeah. I, I say this with complete love. I don't mean to deride him because he had a rough life. You know, he's. I really do love Ed Wood. There's a special place in my heart for him. And I don't mean to make light of his tragic downfall of of sorts. But, you know, I think his creativity and his cast of characters really reminds me of like John Waters films, too. Can you remind me of some of those? Like Pink Flamingos and Crybaby and all of his big ones. Okay. Like the fact that John Waters collected a host of very uh, eccentric characters for Hollywood and used them repeatedly in his films. Because, you know, Edward was known for being... Surrounded by weirdos like Criswell, who, you know, opens and closes Plan 9 and like Vampira and Bela Lugosi. And, you know, it's funny, the way that he got the rest of this film funded after that initial grant to do the uh, black and white silent footage of Bella was through mm-hmm. people he knew from a Baptist church. Oh, yeah, the Baptist church of Beverly Hills. So the whole cast had to go and get baptized. And I think, right. I think. Bella ended up getting baptized in his cape, which is hey, why not? great. <laughs> and it's yeah. so funny to me. Like, I, I really enjoy that as, as a concept. Right. And the church had them change the uh, title, too. Like, I, I think the original title was Grave Robbers from Outer Space. Yeah. But since this church was producing it, you know, they don't like that over at the Baptist Church of Beverly Hills. So, But you know what they do like? <laughs> what do they like? poorly dubbed grave robbers that don't have words that line up with their mouth. Oh my God. Or my favorite, when Paula Trent is lying on the ground and her mouth isn't moving, but she speaks complete sentences. Uh, So it's funny you mentioned that because at first I thought there was some like issue with my streaming service that like none of the (laughs) mouths were moving, but I could hear all the words and like I have pretty shitty internet. So like this is a commonality for me. 
But uh, now that you mention it. <laughs> no, it's bad dope. The ADR was uh, not great. And he has the excuse of a, of a slim budget. And I see a lot of big budget movies nowadays have the same issues. So I can let it slide more for Ed. A hundred percent to your point earlier, like, was he a technically talented filmmaker? Maybe not. But the guy did not have much to work with. And he was doing it pretty much all himself. Again, there's no shortage of respect on my end for someone like that, you know, who's a real go-getter and do-it-yourselfer. Particularly in Hollywood, where if you're not in the nucleus of the studio system, it's really fucking hard to get something made. Particularly in the era he was making film, like independent film was not what it is today. You know, independent films are a dime a dozen these days. Yeah, this is 1955. Right. If you were trying to make an independent film in 1955, like, who knows if you finish it, you know, budget well, you budget know, wise. This is why he was at his one tiny room in Quality Studios where all of his sets were on one soundstage that he rented <laughs> for pennies. And it was behind a bar and a hotel and, you know, it was a literal hole in the wall and he didn't pay anyone that much money. And, you know, Myla Nermi, Vampira, had to do all of her own makeup and get herself there. Well, she doesn't have any speaking lines, right? Well, no, neither does Bella. Well, they're, you know, they're reanimated, so. Even before Bella was resuscitated, because it was a story and film constructed around the silent footage of him. And actually, the guy who plays his double, and it's very clear that it's his double, because the cape over the face is very out of place. They look nothing alike. It's actually Ed Wood's chiropractor, Tom Mason. Oh, good. <laughs> and, a professional. <laughs> you know, bless his bless his heart. Great. The guy who did all the makeup tried very hard to meet Ed's vision of making a body double. His name was Harry Thomas, and he worked on like some interesting things. He made some little creature makeup for Superman at some point, and I remember those. Oh. But he had really cool ideas for the Martians, and he never got to do them, and it was solely due to the lack of time and money, which was really unfortunate. But he like had this idea where they're going to have like larger heads with weird hair and that their mouth would be a perfect circle. And you could hear them and like enunciate English words, but he wanted to go into post-production and alter the audio to make them have a whistle tone. And I'm so upset that that didn't happen. Interesting. Uh, well, you know, this is one of those funny films where the humans run into the aliens and surprise the aliens look just like them and speak perfect English. They didn't initially. That's why they had to build that computer to like translate everything. Right. Their translator. Right. right but then right, yeah. right afterwards, they have full conversations in person. So that made no sense. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if you're looking for sense when coming into this movie, you're in the wrong place. <laughs> well, that's that's the charm, right? Right. And I do think it's funny that at the same time that this was coming out, we do have invisible invaders and like right mm -hmm. before this we had creature with the atom brain so the the sci-fi zombie horror genre is definitely kicking off and i prefer this era of early zombie films because you know even white zombie with bella lugosi and by the way bella lugosi at this point was in so many of these early zombie films like Bowery at Midnight and Voodoo Man yeah. and White Zombie. But I really, really hate the early, early ones because they're just steeped in racism because they take the concept uh, of like the voodoo zombie and then make it very racist, you know? That's that's awful to hear. But, you know, for an actor like Bela Lugosi, who, like you're saying earlier, had a huge role. I mean, his, I, his role as Dracula is fairly iconic. But then you get typecast. And then you got to, I don't want to, I, I love Nicolas Cage, so I hate to, I hate to bring this comparison in, but it's, it's, you know, you got to take what you can get at a certain point. So that's probably why you see a proliferation of Bela Lugosi in these B, schlocky B horror movies is because the guy just wanted to work, you know, and uh, had to. Again, he was a big theater actor and, you know, everybody just, like, yeah. he wasn't even considered for the role of Dracula in the goddamn Abbott and Costello 
movie. Like he he got a really short end of that stick. It's really sad. Um, because again, he's a very good theater actor and a very good actor in general, and you know did some iconic performances. And actually, the script for this movie labeled him as Dracula, even though he's never meant to be a vampire or Dracula. And it was just because it was much easier for Ed to like put across what he wanted from the shot and the character, which I think is very funny. Right. Let's jump into, uh, for anyone who hasn't seen the movie, just like a brief synopsis. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Just so we can get everyone on board with what this movie's about. But I will say the reason I had brought up the earlier films is that I really appreciate the shift to atomic horror zombies. Yeah. You know, <laughs> instead of, instead of, oh, no, the voodoo practices of the uh, descendants of slaves are horrifying and they're going to hurt our white women. <laughs> My, yeah. This is the mid to late 50s. We're in the heat of McCarthyism and Cold War sensibilities and, and anxieties. And Ed Wood was a Marine in World War II. Oh, that does not surprise me at all. <laughs> the guy, The guy was haunted, for sure. So... The zombies, I mean, the zombies aren't made from nuclear energy, but nuclear energy is what kind of sets the whole story in motion. Because what the story is about at its core is a group of aliens who we don't meet personally until about halfway through the movie, maybe, maybe a third of the way through, have come to Earth and are raising the dead. And the Earthlings at first obviously are pretty distressed by this. It's unnatural. It's very not Christian. And I got to jump in and do some some quoting here because I think this is one of the strongest bits of dialogue from the movie is huh. one, the alien saying, it's funny the Earthlings are so scared of the dead. And then two, the pilot, Trent, when he's talking about Paula being alone at home, saying, mm -hmm. well, you know, the aliens are up there. I'm more worried about that cemetery being so close, suggesting that there's a known threat of the aliens, but they're more scared of the unknown threat of zombies. Mm. So I really like that addition a lot, which is why yeah. I think those two lines of dialogue really cement this as a zombie horror film, not just a sci-fi B-movie, you know? Yeah, I mean, it's it's this weird blending of tropes, you know, which is brilliant. And it's almost kind of Ed Wood was writing two movies at the same time and then decided to make it one movie. And we're before Night of the Living Dead, too. So we're still in like the early days of zombies mm -hmm. as like a modern invention right right they're still in play i mean we still got a few years until night of the living dead comes out you know mm -hmm. yeah so humanity is pretty distressed dead people are rising from the earth and then we realize that this dead people rising from the earth is actually the ninth plan hence the title of the movie plan nine from outer space it's the ninth plan of these aliens and you never really get to hear what plans one through eight are I would love to know what plans one through eight were, but plan nine is that they're going to raise the dead on earth to try and scare humanity into stopping their nuclear ambitions, which is which <laughs> an interesting I way of going love. about it. And I think plan one was communication. And honestly, I got to oh, say, okay. I got to say, plan nine walked so X-Files can run. Uh, okay. I swear to God. This high-level, multi-layer government conspiracy hey. for aliens. Because essentially what happens is the aliens try to communicate with the governments of Earth. And these are Martians, by the way. Canonically, they're Martians, which is hilarious to me. You know, for a very long time, Martians and lunar aliens were like the big aliens. And essentially, they're being told that they're not going to get anywhere with communications like the governments of earth are denying their existence saying that right. aliens aren't real and not working with them and so then they start getting fired at by the earth governments and then they fire back on a very small city in order to basically meet that level of force and then the government narrative is aliens don't exist but wink wink if they did they started it and this is their fault and now we have to kill them. And no, they never communicated with us. And then the aliens are like, we tried, guys, and you didn't want to. And this is just proving our point that you have to be eliminated because all you do is kill everything. <laughs> and I I love this solar night 
idea? Are you talking about the solarite bomb? Yes. <laughs> yeah. So the aliens are super afraid that humanity is going to construct this bomb. A hydrogen bomb, according to this movie, is a bomb that ignites the air around it. They, they definitely don't understand how nuclear chemistry works. Which is very funny. I'm not pretending like I do either. I just know that can't be it. (laughs) Okay, so quick and dirty of how nuclear bombs work. Yeah, yeah. I mean, no. Essentially, natural radioactive decay emits subatomic particles. That subatomic particle will hit other atoms that then cause a chain reaction where they also emit subatomic particles and that creates nuclear fission, which creates nuclear bombs. So they're taking the idea that sunlight itself is going to be the catalyst for disrupting photons in a way that leads back to the sun, which then creates a chain reaction of suns blowing up based off of light. Yes. Which is a really cool sci-fi concept. Oh, I'm sorry. Sorry. Not sci-fi. It's it's science fantasy in, you know, the famous words of Harlan Ellison. Yeah, sure. You know, I think that's a really fun progression of extremism from the Cold War. I really enjoy the fact that the aliens are so far advanced that they're like, well, you don't have this yet, but we do. And we don't want you using it because you are not a pacifist society. (laughs) This movie, it's so easy to make the comparisons to like the day the earth stood still, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, I think the day the earth stood still came out in like 1951. It's a common story from the era, you know? You see it a lot also in some Twilight Zone episodes The one on Maple Street, you know, about the human condition and our inability to stop ourselves from wantonly eviscerating each other and hating each other. And the aliens standing by and looking at us being like, what if they were better? (laughs) Which is great. Uh, The alien is always us being able to look at ourselves from an outside perspective. You know, that's kind of their function in the story. Yes. I do love that trope in science fiction. It's been done to death at this point. But it wasn't done to death at this point. Very true. Just can't stop thinking right now about that Keanu Reeves adaptation. (laughs) Oh, no. No, no, go back. Let's go back to the happy, goofy, like, 50s sci-fi. Let's go. Yeah, please. Today's episode of the Infinite Horrors podcast is brought to you by Exalted Funeral, the one-stop shop for all your imaginative needs. At Exalted Funeral, you can pick up the latest issue of Infinite Worlds, Infinite Horrors, or any other zines available to satisfy your otherworldly and gruesome desires. Yes, and for all you tabletop adventurers tuning in, take your next campaign to the darkest reaches of the mind with Exalted Funeral's rich variety of dark fantasy, horror, and occult-based scenarios. And don't forget to check out their merch. Make your outsides as weird as your insides with their selection of shirts, sweaters, and even custom dice. All this and more can be found at exaltedfuneral.com. Follow them on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Exalted Funeral, all one word. And be sure to sign on to their mailing list to stay up to date on new releases, restocks, and other news. Thanks again to Exalted Funeral for sponsoring this episode. I think another thing that sets this sort of story apart is the sort of addition of realism. So when I say that, I mean the idea that like a lot of modern horror movies will kind of put in a fake, this is based on a true story. So does this one. Well, like this is what I'm saying. So it it takes that and the classic example is the War of the Worlds broadcast Mm -hmm. and they take Criswell who is a very, very well-known weird socialite of Hollywood who yeah. essentially right. had ad time initially to help sell his family's supplements and vitamins. And then because he would have more airtime than the ad took, he'd start making predictions and he became famous for how insane they were and like how incorrect they are, which is amazing. I love that. And he was also very he's like camp. Like, he's like an old Alex Jones, you know, peddling and bullshit and selling supplements on the side. But not <laughs> evil geez. like Alex like Alex Jones and not uh, trying to create like not. political discourse. He was just very 
Like he would say things like the the big one is he was friends with Mae West, the actress, and he said at one right. point, "Oh, Mae West is going to become president of the United States, and me and her are going to take a rocket ship all the way to mo- the moon, and like all these things." And you know, he would say that right. Criswell predicts this and like all of that. So the addition of him and the fact that he was in Ed Wood's sort of group of like Hollywood outcast weirdos, group. yeah, 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 Hollywood weirdos. As much as I hate the way he delivers narration and the writing of the narration, I really like that addition. Yeah. And I think that's what really separates it from the other sci-fi zombie movies of the time. Because this is, again, mm-hmm. a trope that's coming to be. And I really love that at the time in Hollywood, everyone watched Griswell. Everyone was listening to him, no matter whether you liked him or not. Because it was just like the yeah. it thing to do. So to bring that in and make it like another one of his predictions, but like if it came true, I think is great. It is great. Although some of this guy's lines made me, and it and it starts right off the bat. Like I think they're really bad. The future is of interest because the future is where you and I will live. Oh yeah, that is just like unbelievably dumb. <laughs> it's repetitive like, oh man it's all exposition you know it's it's bad future and his events. delivery is uh, bad <laughs> right future events such as these will affect you in the future in the future where we all live in the future oh yeah it's a tough start to this movie <laughs> i don't know I do have a good time watching stuff like this. Like, don't get me wrong. We've talked about before Mystery Science Theater 3000. I grew up watching that show. And obviously, I've seen many movies of this caliber get ripped on and made fun of. I have so much fun sitting with friends. And like when we watch Psycho together, you know, just talking through it, having fun. Like, that's a great time. And that maybe is what makes this movie, you know, it's entertaining in that value. It's like one of those first, like, it's so bad, it's good films because it's goofy. Yeah. And it's fun. And like, there's, I actually think there's a decent amount of merit hidden under all of that, which is why I don't agree that it's like the worst film in the world. And I think there's a lot you can take from it. But like, I really do like Ed Wood's artistic direction. Like if you made all of his films silent, they would be so much better. Interesting. Well, the dialogue delivery would certainly get... <laughs> that would be fixed. <laughs> the only drawback is that I actually quite like the sound design of Plan 9. Mm. Even though it's stock music and he uses stock footage again because he worked off of like no budget at all. And that's kind of mm-hmm. one of the tells of his movies is a lot of, of stock material. Oh, yeah. It's constructed in a way that's better than again a lot of modern movies and like the sound design for the sounds of the cemetery at night and my favorite little thing is just the addition of the sound of the alien metal i love that the alien metal can you remind me what yeah it's when they finally find the ufo in the cemetery and they're going in to like confront the martians and one of them takes the butt of their gun and hits the ladder and then goes i haven't seen metal that sounds like this before and it's like this really cool like (laughs) kind of sound i love that it's so cool it's really simple but it's like a really cool addition to this low budget film and yeah i think about all these like ed wood shots in my head like i don't think it's glenn or glenda i'm blanking on which one it is but i remember it very vividly it's a woman's face with a bunch of hands layered over her face and like all these really cool layered shots like the one in i think it is glenn or Glenda when Bella Lugosi is layered over with like bisons running. But Plan 9 is kind of his massive oh, it's work. it's his biggest, like, right? It's the one he's known for. I mean, the Ed Wood movie, right? That one with Johnny Depp. I mean, the whole plot of the movie is his production of Plan 9. You know, when you think of Ed Wood, you think of Plan 9. Well, he cites it as his favorite. Right. He says that like Glenn and Glenda is his autobiography to a point, And then this is his most creative work. Which I agree with. Oh, totally. And you can only imagine, like, when you watch this movie, it's like, you know, if this had, like, a real budget, if you were to make it today with, you know, $100 million, I bet you could make a pretty passable movie. You'd have to change the dialogue. I think it would definitely change a lot. It's unfortunate that Ed Wood was 
you know, his weirdness is what kept him from having access to bigger, bigger production budgets. Well, not even you know? that. Like he, he got a lot of big offers uh, eventually because he started making a name for himself back when B movies were the thing to do. But he kept rejecting them because they carried too many restraints on his creative process. Mm-hmm. So that is like one of his big things. And I I, I respect it. I do. A hundred percent. He had a vision and he stuck with it. I wonder what he thought at the end of his life though. If I had just made a couple concessions, would I be, you know, choking yeah. for air in my buddy's guest room? Maybe not. <laughs> he wouldn't have to do all those porn videos maybe. Well, he did that first before he started making his core set of movies, I thought. I think it might have bookended his career. In the beginning, he did risque films, did science fiction, science fantasy. And then at the end of his career was kind of had to resort to doing more adult videos up till the very end. Fairly certain. Yeah, I know that definitely killed his soul, which is understandable. Yeah, especially because like you can just tell that this guy is such a passionate storyteller and all he wants to do is make movies, highly imaginative movies. And like I said earlier, if you're standing outside the gates, that is the movie business. It is extremely hard to be as passionate and imaginative as Ed Wood is and try and make it in this business, really. Particularly, well, you're a weirdo, Sam. I know. Are you speaking from experience? No, not at all. Not at all. <laughs> no. no, no, no. <laughs> I'm glad to hear it. I'm glad that your level of weird is acceptable. No, I hope so. <laughs> Time will tell. But I feel for the guy. I really do. No, he definitely has a tragic spiral along with Bella. Like a lot of great people just get destroyed by Hollywood, unfortunately. Yes. But that being said, I want to go back and touch on some of Bill Thompson and Harry's work. I don't think there's a more iconic shot of Tor Johnson than him as the zombie. And Tor Johnson, that's the big guy, right? Yeah, yeah. And he's the house that Bella's character like lives in. Yes. But he was known for playing all the strong men and the heavy lifters and like mm-hmm. all of the monsters. And he was like a monster in uh, another Ed Wood film. Uh-huh. And he was like really popular because he was also a very good wrestler. Essentially, he was the 50s Andre the Giant. Oh, that's cool. Well, yeah, he's a big guy and genuinely like in this film is certainly the scariest part of it. That guy looks creepy in this movie. You want to know what that is? What is it? It's all the work of Harry's makeup. So he used to take the membrane of eggs and put it over the eye as a lens. So that's what those eyes are. Oh, And he did a lot of work reapplying those scars. And he was like talking about how he had to be really careful because the materials that he used to apply those like fake scar tissues was corrosive. I think it's collodium. Oh. So he was a very skilled makeup artist, surprisingly. And luckily he didn't hurt him. But he also remembers Tor Johnson telling him that he wants to grout his hair. And uh, Harry said back to him, no, Tor, if you ever do that, you're going to lose your career. Trust me. While he was like shaving his head. <laughs> Jeez. But that is the image of Tor Johnson, I think. Him in this movie with the white eyes. Yeah. Mouth. Yeah, and that like mouth open. Even though you can't understand what he says during his time as the inspector because he has such a heavy Swedish accent. (laughs) Oh, gosh. So many things in this movie. Like there's that one cop, right, who has the gun in his hand the whole time. And anytime he's talking to someone, he breaks rule number one of guns, which is don't wave it around and point it at people when you're pointing at things. And this detective, the whole movie, is talking with his hands as well, but his hand is holding a gun. So he's constantly just like waving his gun around and like pointing at this guy and that guy. And it's just so funny. It's for dramatic effect. (laughs) (laughs) It's just like... This is America. Oh, exactly. You can't be surprised. (laughs) No one has to take gun safety to wield a gun. (laughs) No, no, no. Uh, (laughs) God. But I do love that the cop car has blacked out letters and numbers on the license plate, except for three of them. So they only had to do as many as was like needed to mask the actual license plate i love i love these little like b-movie details i think it's 
incredibly charming. Mm -hmm. There's rumors online that the alien spaceships that they use in this movie were like hubcaps or pizza trays. But like, uh, no, no, you know what it was? It's lights with plywood that were bent and then had a sheet over them. Right. And then they took radio station stuff and put it in. I heard it was uh, that Edward went to like a hobby store and like found models for UFOs. Oh, no, I'm talking about the interior. Oh, the interior. Oh, I was I talking know. about the, I think uh, when you see They're too them, small. Like, no, you need tiny things because they, they had to be light enough to be on a string and they were on a very small set. And, you know, speaking of, I really enjoy the imaginative use of spotlights to show the glare off the UFO whenever it's suggested they pass. Oh, yeah. I think those are actually quite brilliant shots. You know, it's like they didn't have much to go from. So yeah, absolutely. Like when the when the bright lights pass over the people and they like follow the floor dramatically. What else were they supposed to do? And it looks great. I love it. It reminds me of Close Encounters of the Third Kind, where yeah. like they're bathed in light whenever the aliens show up. It's very cool. I, I'm a big fan. Part of the fun thing about working with such a small budget, I mean, maybe the only fun thing about working with a small budget is how much ingenuity you have to bring into the filmmaking for stuff like that. Like if you're going to show the aliens little light focused death ray, how are you going to do that with two lights and and a mirror? You know, it's very cool stuff. Just thinking when you're watching the movie, how they would do this from a technical standpoint. It's fun. And then you get to look at the lovable, weird discontinuities like Lieutenant that says they can't look in the grave because they need to contact the next of kin. But then two seconds later says, no, just jump down there. It's fine. And then they do. Oh, man. There's this great scene where the aliens are in their spaceship and there's a zombie in there with them. And the one guy alien is like, shoot it, shoot it. And the female alien has her little photon gun. And she's like, it's jammed as if like, you know, it's like an old shitty semi-automatic pistol. And then the guy, after all is said and done, has a gun on his hip that he then pulls out like two seconds later, as if he couldn't do that for himself in the beginning. <laughs> you know, it's... Well, I thought that the electrode guns needed to be used on the same person, like the same one. I don't know. There's no real lore to this. <laughs> I was going to say. I do think it's interesting that the humans are more scared of the zombies than the aliens and i think it's a, yeah i think it's actually quite an effective tool when you're trying to describe the humans as the aggressors of the universe yeah because they're not scared of the aliens they're scared of themselves yeah well you know the existence of aliens doesn't go against the laws of nature right and the zombies are breaking the rules of nature that's way more scary to me than you know a visitor from another planet personally. Yeah. Yeah. And what it represents from like, uh, what is the afterlife if you can come back from death? You know, that's something that comes to my mind, at least. Apparently it makes you not want to talk. No, exactly. I would think if I came back from death, I'd be babbling about about what's on the other side. But maybe the silence is telling. I think it's also part of the uh, science aspect of it, right? Like the electrodes are just causing you to move So they're just being controlled type of thing. Right. Which to me is also, you know, we're we're getting into the era of reanimation that is less supernatural and more science fiction. Right. And we've talked about this together many times and this sort of trend. And I do think that, you know, the happenstance of the aliens wearing the costume that they did and the happenstance that they just through radio equipment into the UFO set Mm -hmm. makes it much more like an allegory for modern science than was ever intended. Sure. But just happens to work. And I kind of love it. (laughs) So because of the very iconic makeup done on tour, which is honestly haunting, those eyes are really something else. Seriously. it really inspired a lot of things. But I, I couldn't stop thinking about one of my favorite TV shows as a kid, which was UFO. Uh, it was a 60s British TV show that I was obsessed with. And there's a Halloween costume that I had one year as a kid where I was one of the uh, characters from that show. But for anyone who doesn't see it, there's like a really, it's really cool. It, it's about a similar thing where aliens are abducting humans and turning them into aliens and sending them back to harvest human organs. It's pretty cool. But they use the exact same type of lens in the eyes and they use very similar similar 
UFO props. <laughs> so I kept thinking about that, which I thought was really cool. And, you know, this movie also inspired the song by The Damned, Plan 9, Channel 7, referencing the uh, Vampire's Attic show on Channel 7. Huh. Interesting. Stuff like that. It's really cool. So it had like a significant pop culture effect. Oh man, effect. if I remember correctly, I cannot remember which Seinfeld episode it is, but there's a Seinfeld episode where Jerry Seinfeld is trying to drag Elaine to go see Plan 9 from Outer Space. <laughs> like, despite its failure at the box office and relative cult status for, I think, most of its existence, it's super popular. People know about it. People talk about it. And to circle back to Ed Wood and a lot of artists that never see the fame in their lifetime, it's nice to think that Ed Wood, you know, has fans today, right? Like yourself. Mm-hmm. I, I would not. <laughs> I can't say I love Ed no, Wood. No, that's fair. I appreciate Ed Wood and I respect the shit out of his gumption and do it yourselfness. Some of that dialogue is just so. Stupid. No, they're bad movies. <laughs> I just really like bad movies. Right. That's that I have bad taste. That's no, fine. You don't I'm have bad taste. That. You don't. <laughs> no, no. Liking a movie like this is not indicative of bad taste whatsoever. And like you said before, there are so many worse movies than this one. It's. Oh my God. I would not put this yeah. in the list of worst movies ever. Again, I I just love his use of I don't know thriftiness when coming yeah. and doing these works. One of the best aspects of the graveyard scenes is the amount of fog he uses. But the main (laughs) reason he used it was to diffuse the shitty lights he was using. So the whole atmosphere of the foggy cemetery was technical. All the gravestones are made of cardboard. Oh my god, yeah. No, everything's cardboard. (laughs) But everything looks decent. It's better than what I could do with cardboard. It looks good enough. I respect it. You know, it's good. And... It was a multi-denominational cemetery. I don't know if you know, I don't know if you noticed that, but there's a couple of graves with Jewish stars on them. It's, Fuck yeah! There you go. I like it. Heck yeah! <laughs> representation. I like it. <laughs> and speaking of representation, mm-hmm. Ed Wood was a transvestite, not gay, because he Glenn or Glenda is a very good commentary for the time, specifically showing that gender does not equate to sexuality, Mm -hmm. which I think is a revolutionary thing to put out at that time when, you know, everybody was not really sure what queer people were. Just a heads up, I use the term queer personally because I also identify as queer. And I know this is not everyone's choice of language, but, you know, it's the best catch-all term I have for the LGBTQIA plus group, and I don't mean it in an offensive way. It is a catch-all for me, but I would describe Ed Wood speculatively as genderqueer, because some of the things he says are not the types of things you would hear from someone who is cis, you know? Like He always said his greatest fantasy was being reincarnated as a gorgeous blonde, and if you're just wearing women's clothing, that's one thing. But if you genuinely want to be another gender and that's your greatest fantasy, that points to being, you know, not cis to me. <laughs> uh, sure. And unfortunately, that may be what ostracized him from working with the- I don't players. think so. Because he would walk mm-hmm. around Hollywood and direct and everything in his alter ego Shirley with his full facial hair, which I love. But, you know, he- he was very out. He was very out and proud. And he put his first like big film was him talking about and starring in a sh- movie talking about the inner turmoil of transvestitism and how, you know, that mm-hmm. related to his relationship with his fiance and all these things, which I like, again, very cool. And at the time of recording, we're coming up on uh, Pride Month next uh, tomorrow, actually. That's so, right. yep. you know, tip of my hat to Ed Wood for that as well. The Pride Parade in West Hollywood is, I don't know if you've heard about it, but it is something to behold. It is such a good time. Me and my buddies go every year. It is a nice moment. Ours is in fall because if we hold it in June, everyone will get heat stroke. Everyone would melt. (laughs) But, you know, I also think about Eddie Izzard, who now realized that she was transgender, not just a transvestite, and how transvestitism was kind of mixed in with gender queerness and how even in the 50s butch lesbians also 
weren't given the concept of being transmasculine, just, you know, butch women. So I think there's a lot of further exploration in the modern that could have benefited Ed Wood at the time. But, you know, I think that might have added to his creativity and his resolve in his career. And I I think that's really cool as well. And just how much like everyone who's worked with him loves him and how much of a genuine person that everyone says he is. Yeah, yeah. There's like an earnest quality to all of his work. Absolutely. Not an ounce of that phony Hollywoodness from what I've seen of his stuff, which isn't as much as you. To be fair, I haven't watched any of his porn films, so. Oh, me, me neither. I, I wonder I wonder how those play out. Oh boy, now I'm, now I'm thinking about that. <laughs> I'm not <laughs> oh, doing no. an episode on that with you. <laughs> <laughs> That's too horrific for me. Yeah, too much horror, too much horror. <laughs> God, what a guy. I've said this in the past hour. The guy had a passion. You got to respect him for that. He was making honest movies that were honest to himself and, and his interests and what he thought was good film. And to your point of him turning down offers based off his artistic integrity, not everybody does that. So you got to respect the ones that do. And, so. and, you know, going against the grain like that in everything he does, especially post-World War II, making making a movie. In the fucking 1950s. Yeah, making a movie that's anti war essentially because the story he ended up creating based off the silent footage that he had of bella is very anti-war it's anti-atomic era it's it's very much we're heading towards a mass extinction and you should be afraid of yourselves and what we're going to do with this technology right and you know this is also a theme that we've breached before Uh uh-huh that like soapbox science fiction trying to shake us into being better people or a better species I love it, though, because, you know, I totally believe that storytelling, the purpose of it is to pass information and lessons along to whoever is willing to listen. And this movie, for all its faults, does have an incredible message that anti-war, you know, the quest for power is, you know, only ultimately leads to our, our own demise. And this is that kind of fear of humanity's overreaching in our technological endeavors. It's really good. And I think about artificial intelligence today and yeah, I don't know. That's a whole nother conversation, but we're coming to an Oppenheimer moment where we got to decide what we do about that. And Well, you know, these, these aliens were far ahead of us and right. essentially had hindsight that were right of what we were going to do. But, you know, at the same time, they didn't know how to exit a very slowly flammable spacecraft and instead took (laughs) off instead of exiting like the humans did and then exploding in Uh midair so how much can they really know (laughs) (laughs) Uh, (laughs) which i think is great but also again these are all like basically half-baked great horror and sci-fi ideas and half-baked commentary that have really good starts but if edward had better friends with more money could have helped him with the script a bit. But, you know, like at the end, Vampira never gets caught. And I kind of love that as well, because she's just out there. And we know this takes place in San Fernando. So some say that she's still out there to this day, walking around with that impossibly thin waist. I worried about her small intestine. (laughs) Well, you know what she used to do? What? She used to fast for three days and then use a really restrictive corset. Oh, ow. Yeah, she would not (laughs) eat for three days to get there. So don't do that. If you ever like Vampire's figure, please do not fast for three days. That is awful. (laughs) She was uh, literally trying to model her figure on a cartoon character. This is not healthy. And, you know, I'm really sad that we didn't get to hear her iconic scream because she was a silent character. But, you know, it's okay. Where can we hear the iconic scream? Uh, in the beginning of every one of her vampire's attic intros, she comes out of the fog oh, and then she does this like beautiful blood curdling scream. Mm. And she modeled herself off of the original Charles Adams comic on the Adams family. Ah, yeah, it makes sense because I was going to say she looks a hell of a lot like uh, Mrs. Adams, you know. Yeah, Morticia. For sure. Morticia, thank you. Yeah, you're welcome.
it was really cool. Again, this was really out there stuff. Like nobody dressed like this. The original comic was to subvert like societal norms. So uh-huh. she was a fringe weirdo in Hollywood at the time. Yeah. To bring this back around and just end it, because I think we've we've talked quite a bit about this movie. This really reminds me of the uh, recent unearthing of documents by the Pentagon and all of those Navy oh. pilots that were coming out. Because when the two pilots in the film are talking about the way that the UFOs behaved, and it's like, oh, it was gone in a second, and I saw this thing, and it was blinding. It reminds me exactly of those two Navy pilots that were on that Oh yeah. Uh, message to congress and how they described things which i think is hilarious yeah thank you tom delong if you're listening <laughs> thank you <laughs> for leaving blink 182 to tell us the truth of alien existence <laughs> what a guy what a guy there was that congressional meeting about ufos and they're yeah they're yeah. just like two pilots that were like no we saw this very quick pill shave that like moved around i don't believe in this by the way I I don't think that these are like I don't believe in UFOs as everyone thinks they're there. I know that after World War II there was like a jump in alien conspiracies because of the nature of World War II, and this is also probably influenced by that. But mm-hmm. I believe in alien life. I believe in complicated alien life because in an infinite universe, statistically, we can't be the only ones. But I don't think they'd ever make contact with us, and I don't think UFOs exist in the way we think they do. Obviously, there are unidentified flying objects, but I don't think that it's alien in origin. Mm. I believe. <laughs> you want to believe? I do not. Am I the molder and you're the scully of this? I think, I think this? that is accurate. <laughs> I absolutely believe. Here's the thing, like, is every UFO sighting a UFO? Far from it. I think, you know, 99.9% of those are just a balloon reflecting in the sky or something. You show me the Amish hive people and maybe I'll give you some, some slack here. Amish hive people? From that, that episode of... X-Files. Ah, see, I'm not like the X-Files master that I wish I was. You must be. You gotta do better to be Mulder, man. I know. I know. Truthfully, I've only seen a handful of episodes. (laughs) But, you know, there's always time. It's just, you know, how many seasons of that were there? And like each season had 20 episodes. Each episode is an hour. You only have to watch up until Mulder gets abducted, because then it gets bad. Oh, Okay. I know I need to watch the show because I know like William Gibson wrote a few episodes and there's a lot of good science fiction writers who got their hands on the show and were able to write some episodes. So I should watch it. We should end this episode immediately and make you do that yeah, now. Yeah, right. <laughs> well, yeah, it's been great talking about Plan 9. I can't say I love the movie, but I certainly respect that. If you enjoy the goofiness of like Jonathan Frakes, Beyond Belief and... Also, the classic tropes of universal movie monsters. I think this kind of combines both of those into one charmingly bad movie. Right. So watch it with friends and have a laugh. Yeah, maybe consume some substances beforehand. I had to midway through. I was like, you know what? Can't handle this. (laughs) I am happy to watch it sober. Alone and sober. I needed some assistance. Uh, (laughs) I was watching with a buddy, too, who'd never seen it. And so I was just like, what the fuck? Anyway, Plan 9 from Outer Space, Ed Wood, a classic. Keep an eye out for those UFOs. Yeah, keep your eyes to the sky. Infinite Horrors Magazine is a full-color, ad-free print magazine from the creators of Infinite Worlds. You can get your signed and hand-numbered direct edition copy of Infinite Horrors Number 1 plus Infinite Horrors merch at infinitehorrorsmagazine.com. You can also get the newsstand edition at exaltedfuneral.com. Be sure to check out the Infinite Worlds podcast, as well as the Infinite Worlds magazines. Find us on social media at Infinite Horrors Magazine or Infinite Worlds Magazine. Also, feel free to visit InfiniteHorrorsMagazine.com or InfiniteWorldsMagazine.com. And you can follow me online on Instagram at Heavy underscore Metal underscore Fruit. And you can follow me on Instagram at HorrorSamW. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.